Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Talk about signs this morning. Some signs uh, reveal things pretty obvious. Uh, some signs are revealing uh, things that could be dangerous. Most of these are pretty obvious. That one's dangerous. There are seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus turned water into wine here in chapter 2. Jesus healing an official son in chapter 4. Jesus healing a man at Bethesda in chapter 5. Jesus feeding 5,000 and walking on water in chapter 6. Restoring sight to a blind man, chapter 9. Raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11. All these events are miracles. But John, he never calls these events miracles. He calls them signs. Different word in the Greek, they're signs. Signs point to something. So in John's mind, what do these miraculous events point to? Thankfully, we don't have to think very hard or look very far. He tells us exactly what these signs point to. In In verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the word manifest means to bring to light, means to make visible, to reveal. Signs always point to something. And so in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles were signs that revealed Jesus' glory. Now it's impossible for us to fully define glory, to understand all of God's glory. I like what Paul Tripp says about glory. He says, glory isn't a part of God, it's all that God is. Every aspect of God is and Every part of what he does is glorious. Now, why did John want his readers to see the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us why in a couple of summary verses of his whole book, John 20, 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, he's possibly, or John, he's possibly the most evangel- evangelistic of the gospel writers. He wants you to believe in Jesus. And so he's chosen to include these seven signs in order to reveal Jesus' glory so that you believe that, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. So when I, uh, when I approach a text uh, to study, I always ask the text a lot of questions I want answers to to help me understand what's happening. And I had written down over maybe three dozen questions I needed answered to help me start studying this, uh, this narrative. But once I realized that John included these signs to reveal the glory of Jesus, that one question became the most important question to answer. How is Jesus' glory revealed in this event. We're going to do the best we can to see as much glory of Jesus Christ as we can. And I found eight attributes, glorious attributes of Jesus sprinkled throughout these verses. So we're going to get started. Uh, Verse 1, 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan and Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Um, John is very detailed. If you read through the first uh, chapter and a half here, uh, he's filling in a lot of gaps that the synoptic gospels have left out. Um, the synoptics, they recorded Jesus' birth, his temptation in the wilderness, um, and his uh, baptism by John. All that has happened in Jesus' life at this point. Uh, but now Jesus is revealing himself to the world as the Messiah. And John's first five chapters, all the things that he includes, aren't included in the, in the synoptic gospel. So he's filling a lot of gaps about Jesus' early ministry, ministry and what it was like. So the third day, this is going to be three days after, uh, he, he gives a very detailed week of the first, first week of Jesus' uh, ministry uh, when it begins. So this is three days after the event in uh, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Uh, it's located in Cana. Uh, we don't exactly know where the town of Cana is, but it's a small town in Galilee. Um, probably hundreds of people, not, a thousand, not, not thousands of people, it's a small town. And so this is taking place at, the, at a wedding feast. Um, the last phase of the Jewish wedding is the wedding feast where everyone's celebrating the wedding. Um, they're eating, they're drinking, they're giving food and drink. Uh, just like some of our wedding, weddings, you know, you've got you to feed your guests. And then some of these wedding feasts can last up to a week. It's a lot of food, it's a lot of wine. So verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And I just love this image that Jesus is here at the wedding, uh, eating and drinking with the people, talking with them, celebrating with them, celebrating the institute of marriage, which he has created, which he's a big fan of. It was a joyous occasion. He was eating and drinking. He wasn't off in a corner somewhere condemning everyone or criticizing everyone. He was celebrating with them. Jesus was invited to the wedding, and he, he accepted the wedding invitation. Um, every time that Jesus... I don't know if you realize, but every time Jesus was invited to come over to someone's house and eat, he always went. He didn't turn down an invitation. He wasn't like John the Baptist, you know, who lived alone off in the wilderness eating locusts and bugs and, and honey. You know, Jesus loved people. He loved being around people. He spent so much time in people's homes eating and drinking with them that people got the wrong idea about him. They they actually accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. It said, he quotes them. He says in Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus didn't turn down any invitations to be with people. He enjoyed sharing a meal. I just think we need to understand Jesus as a people person. He's not a distant, condemning cosmic force that's cold and empty and far, far away. He genuinely loves being with people. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on flesh that he could be with us, not to remain distant from us. You know, as a human, he understands everything that we go through. He's experienced every emotion that we've experienced. He knows how we think and he still, he still wants to be with us. He still loves us. So if you are, you have to stop thinking of Jesus as this distant, cold, cosmic force. He's God incarnate. He's God among us. He's one of us. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, 
So uh, Mary, she was privy to the wine shortage. She might have been helping out uh, with the wed- wedding, you know, feeding people, getting their drinks, you know, serving. She might have been a close relative or a friend of the family. So how big of a problem is it to run out of wine at a Jewish wedding? It's a big problem, okay? Big problem. Uh, it's the groom's responsibility to provide enough food and enough wine. Uh, this guy might have been a poor planner, might have been poor. Uh, we don't know why he ran out, but if, if you can't feed and uh, give enough drink to your, your guests, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring shame to the family. And in a Jewish small town like this, it's going to cause a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame. And we, we can appreciate this, right? You know, as if you're hosting a wedding, you'd be pretty embarrassed if you ran out of food and water, or food and wine, food and drink. So uh, Mary knew how big of a problem this was going to be for the family, so she took the problem to Jesus. And this was a problem that didn't have, have many easy solutions, okay? Uh, you know, how do you get enough wine for hundreds of people real quick? Uh, if you don't have any money to do it. Uh, it's a big problem. They were in quite a pickle. So how many of us here have ever been in a situation where we needed help in fixing a problem that we couldn't fix on our own? We tried to fix it. We failed. Christians in this room, how many of you have found yourself at the end of your rope and you found Jesus to be right there waiting for you? How many of you ever found that when all your power is spent, Jesus stepped in and he solved the problem in such a way that you know that only he could have done it? I'm positive you all have a story of a time like that, that Jesus was there when Mary came to him. Why was he there? Because Jesus is faithful, right? He's always faithful. He's always there for us. In fact, most of us have found that when we were at our lowest, Jesus revealed himself to us and fixed our problem in such a way that caused his glory to shine the greatest through that situation. You know, God's all about his glory. You know, he loves to rescue us in ways that make us say, only God could have done that for me. And I'm sure you all have stories like that. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.8. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, that, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And sometimes God puts us in trying circumstances so that we would have to turn to him for help. Because he's faithful. And he's always there for us. And he can rescue us in such a dramatic way that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the one that delivered us. And we stand in awe of him for what he does. When he does that, don't we? We glorify him. Jesus is going to do for Mary and this family something that only he could do for them. Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now Mary came to Jesus with this problem. And Jesus kind of gives this kind of short, kind of, kind of a strange answer. 
calls her woman. Now, this is not a disrespectful, chauvinistic term, okay? He's not being rude here, but he's also not being familial. You know, he's not calling her mother. Why doesn't he call her mother here? Well, remember, this is the beginning of his public ministry, where he's beginning to reveal to the world that he is the Messiah. Now, he's lived his whole life as the son of Joseph and Mary, but now he's beginning to set his face toward Jerusalem, to the mission that his heavenly father has given to him, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So he calls her a woman to show her that, that from here on out, his, his life is going to be about doing his heavenly father's will. So he's separating himself from his relationship with his mother in a way. He's distancing himself from, from his earthly family. And that distancing continues with each phrase. He says next, what does this have to do with me? Now, this exact phrase is the fr phrase that uh, the demons used when they met Jesus. What do you have to do with me? It's a, it's a rhetorical question that means, what do you and I have in common? And the answer is nothing. So it's a statement that makes a distinction between two people. We don't have things in common anymore. So from here on out, Jesus is founding a new covenant family based on faith in him. He says the same thing in Matthew 12, 46. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is putting his relationship with his father and his sheep ahead of all his earthly relationships. Then he says, my hour has not yet come. That's, of course, referring to his passion, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. So he's saying to Mary, you can't involve me in family matters like this anymore. I'm not about Mary and Joseph family business anymore. I'm about my heavenly father's work, my crucifixion. He's no longer going to be known in Israel as Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. He's, he's to be known as Jesus, the son of God, from here on out. He's no longer Jesus, the carpenter, carrying on Joseph's work in the family business. He's now Jesus, the Christ, doing the work of his heavenly father, being the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So his obedience to God is now his just consuming passion. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to disrespect his family every time chance he gets. doesn't mean he's going to start breaking all the rules of the Roman government. He's just saying that his obedience to his heavenly father is going to shine brighter than his obedience to any other authority on the earth. Okay? And as Christians, our obedience to God should shine brighter than our obedience to every other authority that we're subject to. We obey Jesus first, family second, Jesus first, state second, Jesus first, friends, church, elders second, Jesus first. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, my heavenly Father's first. Verse 5, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. So why did Mary bring this problem to Jesus in the first place? I just want to make a couple of points uh, most people think that at this point in time, Joseph is probably dead, okay? Um, we only hear about Joseph in the birth narratives, 
And while on the cross, if you remember, Jesus told John to take care of Mary. So that indicates that that's something that the firstborn son would do if the father was dead. Okay, so he passed that responsibility on to, on to John. So uh, that, that probably means that Joseph's dead. Okay, so Mary had, didn't have Joseph to turn to for help in this situation. Okay. And also just remember, uh, Jesus is perfect, right? So he was the perfect son growing up. Um, <clears throat> he has been full of grace and truth from his youth, right? So anytime that Mary had a problem in her life, if she came to Jesus and said, hey, I got this problem, what do you think I should do? Every answer that Jesus has ever given has been full of grace and truth, okay? So if you were Mary and you had the choice between getting an answer full of grace and truth and anybody else, you're going to go to the one that's giving you the answer of grace and truth every time, okay? So even if Joseph was alive at this point in time, Mary's probably still going to Jesus because his answers are always full of grace and truth, any problem that she had, she was taking them to Jesus because she trusted he's a man full of grace and truth. She wasn't taking this problem to him and demanding a miracle. That's what some commentators would say. She was casting her cares upon him and trusting him to handle her problem. He had proven to her time and time again over the past 30 years that she could do that. He had proven to her, her that he cared. She was living out 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. And that's why she told the servants to do whatever Jesus told them to do because she knew Jesus cared. And he would solve this problem with grace and truth like every other problem. So there's really a lot of compassion on Jesus' part in this miracle. You know, if this fam family ran out of wine, uh, they would be embarrassed, Right? But really, through the lens of eternity, was this really a huge problem? I mean, no one's going to die, right, if they don't have enough wine, right? It was kind of a trivial problem. They might have gotten made fun of for a little while in the town. Lost respect, maybe. But this was kind of a trivial problem. And yet, Jesus cared enough to fix it. Jesus supplied their need. Jesus actually cared about the family's reputation. He cared about keep, keeping the joy and the, the festivities of the wedding alive and going. He, he cared. There's no problem you face that is too small for Jesus to care about. And there's no problem too big that he's not powerful enough to fix. He cares about you. He cares about your problems, both big and small. How many of us don't take our little problems to Jesus because we just don't believe that he cares? So I'm at home in the kitchen. I'm baking bread. You know, when you're first baking bread, you got the dough all over your hands. It's sticky. So I'm baking bread. Faith's got a picture in my face that she's showing me that she drew. Ellie's demanding a cup of, cup of water. Steph is lecturing Caleb and eating because they're quarreling. I'm telling Caleb, Boaz to get the trash out because it's full. This is all in our kitchen, you know, all at once. Lydia comes out of the bathroom, got her underwear up, got her pan, 
pants down to her ankles. She can't walk. She trips. She falls on the floor. She starts crying. And I, you know, I believe in you know, age-appropriate lectures for my kids. So I say, get up. Quit your whining. Get a handle on your emotions. You know, she's three years old. I've been telling her that since she was two. Get a hold of yourself, girl. Get up. Quit your whining. You know, nobody cares. You know, I don't comfort her because I'm too busy to care. Right? And our God is not like that. He cares all the time. His compassion is without bounds. You know, his love is so great that he can care about everything all the time. He's a God of infinite love and infinite compassion. He has a heart big enough to care about even the smallest problems that we have. You need to trust that. Trust that he cares and take your problems to him. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So, so far we've seen the glory of Jesus' incarnation, the glory of his faithfulness, of his obedience, of his compassion. But there is a central truth in this miracle that we haven't found yet. Remember that of all the miracles that John records in his Gospels, they're all signs of Jesus' glory. And signs are kind of like parables in that you have to think about the meaning behind them to see the glory of Jesus Christ that each one is revealing. Now, in a lot of uh, John's miracles that he records, there is a central truth that's obvious. Okay, So, for instance, in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then proclaimed in chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that you need to be eating. Pretty obvious. In 8.12, Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. And then in chapter 9, he opens up the, the eyes of a blind man. He says, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 11.25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay? But the miracle performed here by Jesus isn't followed by a great I am statement that reveals a specific truth about Jesus we got to do a little bit more digging to really get at it, okay? So follow me here. We want to find out what the main attribute of Jesus Christ that is being glorified here in this miracle is. And we got to consider a couple things. we got to consider the context that we find this passage in, and we got to consider uh, some cl- clues in the account itself. So let's just look at this uh, real quick. These six stone jars... Why is that included in this passage? You know, by, in Jesus' day, uh, Judaism had turned into a very works-oriented religion. Okay? Many Jews strived to earn God's favor by what they did instead of by faith. And so they had a lot of laws, and they kept a lot of laws, and they believed that if they kept the laws perfectly, they could earn their way into heaven. And they pleased God. He let them in. And a lot of their laws were called purification laws. These are laws about how to clean things, okay? Uh, how to clean pots and pans. Um, they had to clean their hands and their feet before and after every meal. And they even had laws about the containers to store the water in that you would clean yourself with. Okay, that's why these jars here are stone jars. They had to be stone jars to, to clean your hands and feet with. So we have six of them here. And there were six of them here at the wedding because they had a lot of people who had to clean their hands and feet. 
before and, ever, before and after every single meal. So they had six stone jars here. They held a lot of water. Now, we all know that if Jesus wanted to, he could make wine appear anywhere, anyhow, right? He could have had wine squirt out the tree, could have squirted out of Mary's ear, could have rained, it could have done anything. He could have done anything, right? But he chose to have them come out of these Jewish rites of purification stone jars. Now, why did he do that? Why did he have them come out of those stone jars? The new wine. He made new wine to be drowned out of stone jars that represented old Jewish rites of purification. He was making something new come out of something old. So what's he teaching us here? He's teaching us that he is something new. The works-oriented religion of Judaism, that's the old way. But he is the new and living way to the Father. And I believe we're on the right track to understand the meaning of this miracle. And I, I think that's going to come into sharper focus as we look at the context of this verse. Look where John puts it. He puts this miracle, and then immediately following this miracle, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, this is the first cleansing of the temple. It's only recorded by John. Now, why does John include it right after the first miracle? So, by cleansing the temple, Jesus is telling the Jews they had worship all wrong. They had a wrong understanding of who God is and how to draw near to him. In the miracle of the new wine, Jesus is saying that he is the new and living way of the Father. And then the next story that John tells us about Jesus, we see Jesus getting rid of everything that the Jews had wrongly placed into the temple. So John is continuing this theme that, Judea, that Judaism is the old way, and Jesus, he's the new way. Okay? There's another evidence. I just want you to look back at John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Why does John write this? Look at John 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the miracle in Cana is teaching us this verse in real life. The law given through Moses is like the water in those stone pots. That's the old way. Grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ is the new way. Jesus is the new wine. That's what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. Jesus is the new wine. He is the new and living way from the Father drawn out from the old ways. The law that came through Moses condemns a man before God, but the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ makes a man able to stand before God forgiven, right? The old way of the law brings death to a man because law makes us guilty and deserving of God's wrath, but the new way of Jesus' grace and truth brings life because we're justified through faith in his blood. Jesus is the new wine. He is something new. He's transcendent. Transcendent means surpassing the ordinary, exceptional, beyond or above the range of normal human experience. Jesus Christ is unlike any other person you've, who's ever lived. He's unlike any other person you're ever going to know. He's transcendent. He's new. 
So to those of you who keep striving to find answers to questions that maybe have plagued you for years, but you've tried, you've tried meditating, you've tried philosophy, you've tried other religions, nothing makes any real sense. But you still haven't found what you're looking for. Well, it's time to try someone new, Jesus Christ. He's the one you need to find, and he will give you the answers that you've never heard before. He's something new. He's transcendent. He's unlike anything else you've ever experienced. To those of you who are unsatisfied with life, you keep running after all the sin that, that makes you feel good for a moment, but after you've had your fill of sin, you still feel empty. You want more, you get more, and yet every single time you get more and you're never satisfied. It's time to try someone new, Jesus Christ. He will satisfy you in a way that nothing else on this earth ever could satisfy you. He's something new. He's transcendent. Jesus is unlike any other person who's ever lived. He's unlike any other person you'll ever know. He calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to repent and believe. If you've never tried him, try him today. Let's see what happens when you do. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Jesus transformed water into wine here. It was a miracle. And Jesus is really good at transforming things, right? He uh, transformed the earth with the flood. Right? Completely changed it. When he returns, he's going to destroy heaven and earth as it is now. He's going to transform it, make it something new. He transformed religion into a relationship with him. He destroys the idea of having peace with God by doing good works. It's impossible. And he establishes peace with God by grace, through faith in him, and having a personal relationship with him. That's completely different than any other religion out there. He completely transformed religion, made it into a relationship with him. He transforms people, right? We're new creatures. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He gives us a new family, right? Before we were saved, Satan was our father. But Jesus has adopted us, and now God's our father. We have a new master. We used to be slaves to sin and to Satan, but Jesus redeemed us, and now we're slaves of Christ. He's a much better master, right? We have a new verdict in God's court of law. law. We used to be declared guilty because of our sin and deserving of judgment, but God has justified us, and he's imputed to us his righteousness so that we're declared innocent before God now because of him. We have a new relationship with God. We used to be enemies of God, but now we're friends of God. We have a new freedom. We used to owe God a debt. Our sin required us to die. That was our debt, but Jesus died in our place. We are forgiven of that debt, and now we stand before God as freed men. So the good news is, if you don't like the person that you are, the good news is that Jesus will change you. He transforms people. He's good at it. He'll change you if you let him. You don't like the circumstances you're in? Well, he may not change your circumstances, but he will change you. So you respond to your circumstances differently. 
He'll change you if you let him. And what's he going to change us into? Somebody that is full of love, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's who he is. And that's who he changes us into. That's the glorious transforming power of Jesus Christ. Now, look at this humility, humility, last part of that verse. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. This is the humility of Christ. There's a lot of parallels, really, between the, the first miracle of Jesus and uh, his birth. You know, you know, the first miracle occurred here in Cana. Uh, it's not a big city, a small little place, and nothing important is going on there. It's not like Jerusalem. In the same way, Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem, not a big town, not a really important town. The first witnesses to Jesus' birth, uh, they were shepherds, right? They weren't royalty. They weren't important leaders of the land. Uh, they were just shepherds. And the first witnesses of Jesus' first miracle, they were slaves. They were the only ones that knew who, what Jesus had done. Not even his disciples knew what he had done. His disciples probably heard it from the slaves. Well, Jesus is humble. And we see that in how he went about performing this miracle. You know, he didn't jump up on all the tables and say, I turn water into wine, look at me. But we also see his humility in, in who he chooses to let testify about his transforming power. He didn't choose a king to reveal his first miracle to. He didn't allow the religious leaders to see the miracle and then spread the news about him. He chose slaves to be the first ones to witness his transforming power. Slaves, nameless slaves. In the same way, God chose nameless shepherds to be the first one to testify about his birth. And what a humbling privilege that Jesus bestows upon us people who really were not that important, right? In the grand scheme of things, yet he reveals himself to us. Slaves and shepherds to proclaim his glory to the world. His humility is pretty humbling when you think about it. Here's our last point, verse 10. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And remember, Jesus is the wine. So what's he saying here? That he is superior to the old wine. The wine Jesus provided here was, was superior in both quantity and quality. Let's look at quantity. You know, there were six jars here, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's between 120 and 180 gallons of wine that this couple now has. That was more than enough than what they needed for their guests. Way more than enough. And it was good wine. I mean, the, the, this couple, they're going to have wine for months and months, and they could probably t turn around and sell it, pay for their wedding. What's Jesus telling us about himself here? He is more than enough of everything that we need Everything that we want, he can supply more than enough than what we need. His grace is abounding. There's tons of verses we can go through in the Bible that says things like, God's grace is abounding, his love is everlasting, Jeremiah 31.3, his life is eternal, his pleasures are forevermore, his mercy is abundant, his goodness is abundant. We could quote the Bible all morning talking about all the attributes of God and how Jesus possesses all of them in abundance. 
Everything you need, he has an abundance. And that means that we can continually go to him with our needs and find in him a full supply. Jesus, the new wine, is superior in quality. The master of the feast said that the wine Jesus provided was better tasting than the old wine. Jesus is better tasting the water in those pots and all the wine that's ever come before him. John 1, 16 again, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What Jesus gives is better than what Moses gave. The law of Moses could convict a man of sin, but Jesus can forgive a man of his sin. He's better. The law of Moses could condemn a man for his sin, but Jesus can save a man from his sin. He's better. And the whole book of Hebrews is devoted to showing and proving how Jesus Christ is better than anything that's come in the past. You take one drink of a relationship with Jesus Christ and you will never want to taste worthless, works-oriented, dead religion again. Jesus changed the empty, barren religion of the Jews into the new, joyful, delicious wine of Christianity. Have you ever experienced the superior flavor of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I think I have. I think I delight in Jesus. I think I know he's better than others, but maybe when I compare my experience to other people's experience, I might not be on the same level, and I'm not sure what that means. I just want to encourage you that we all experience the glory of Jesus Christ progressively. And this is taught in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and other places. The 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. From one degree of glory to another, we experience Jesus Christ. He reveals more of his glory. We taste and see that he is good. And we do this more and more in our walks as Christians. Learning how to delight in Jesus more. Learning how to have more faith in him. That grows progressively. It happens in stages. And this is what we learn in verse 11. I'm gonna, we're going to close with this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This is what we're, we learn in verse 11. We started with this verse. Uh, we're going to close with it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John says that Jesus' disciples saw the glory of Jesus manifested in the sign, and the result was that they believed in him. But, but listen, John already told us that the disciples believed in Jesus. In chapter 1, he said in chapter 1 that Andrew and Simon already believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Philip already believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Nathaniel believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the King of Israel. They already believed these things in chapter 1. So what's happening here in chapter 2? Well, they're believing more. And that's, that's the walk of a Christian. That's what Jesus taught Nathaniel in John 1.50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. Nathaniel believed Jesus in chapter 1, and now that he saw this greater thing here in chapter 2, this miracle where Jesus' glory was manifested right in front of him, now Nathaniel has experienced Jesus in this way. He, he believes even more. You will see greater things than these. That's a promise. To you whose faith is weak, keep trusting. Jesus will reveal, reveal more of himself to you to build up your faith. That's a promise. You will see greater things than these. And that's a promise I stand on with my kids. You know, I want my kids to believe more. I want them to grow more. I want them to love Jesus Christ more. The promise here is that they will see greater things than these. Jesus will do that for them. He will reveal more of his glory so that their faith in him will grow stronger and deeper. And he'll do the same for each one of us. So keep believing, and you will see greater things than these. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And we praise you for your glory. God, we can't put into words how great and awesome you are, how glorious you are. But God, we love it so much when you reveal more and more of your glory. And I just thank you so much for this, that promise. So I ask, God, for, for those of us here who, who just need to see more of you. As we're, we're struggling and we're, we're hurting. God, we ask that you would show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. We're loved.